Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Can I just ask? Shut up, Evan. I'm curious. Could you shut up, Evan? One thing I was thinking about. Shut up, Evan. So there are some rumors out there. Evan, shut up! Is it okay if I just ask? Shut up, Evan. Okay, but can I just... Shut up, Evan. I didn't even say anything. Hello, hello, hello. It is Evan Ross Katz, and this is Sex and the City. Um, no, actually, this is this is not Sex and the City. This is Shut Up, Evan, a podcast about gay shit and internet culture. I'm Evan Ross Katz, as I think we've established, but good to reinforce from time to time. And look, I wondered whether or not to do another podcast episode in which I kick things off with a conversation about Andrews like that. And I thought for a long time, I was like, eh, it's over, it's done, let's move on. But the truth of the matter is I haven't moved on. Um, I continue to absorb every piece of writing out there. I just read a fabulous piece that Roxanne Gay uh, wrote in her Substack about um, the series. And I listened to uh, Fanti, the fabulous Fanti podcast, in which they devoted an episode to talking about it. And it's just so... Interesting, listening to all people um, with various vantage points to the original series, some that have never seen it, some that sort of discovered it through like re-airings on TBS or the E! Network, which I find so interesting because that's a very sexless version of Sex and the City that to a lot of people out there, like that is the way in which they previously consumed the former iteration of the show, whatever we want to call it. Um in addition to that, I've been super duper fascinated in listening to some of the postmortem conversations that have happened. There is the And Just Like That ancillary podcast that's hosted by uh, Michael Patrick King, the executive producer and creator of And Just Like That. And it's sort of, he welcomes in some of the other writers from the show and they break down sort of the intentions of creating this show. And I, and I find it to be a very fascinating listen. I highly recommend it. If for no other reason than the, at times, um, gigantic <laughs> um, disparity between what was being conceived versus what was being um, perceived, right, by the fans. Um, but it's certainly a worthwhile listen. And I've also enjoyed listening to various actors from the show talk about it. I know that... Uh, Kristen Davis came out at one point when asked on Watch What Happens Live if if she found Che Diaz's comedy funny. She said no. I was at a recent taping 
of uh, Watch What Happens Live that Sarah Jessica Parker was at. She was asked the same question. She sort of demurred and basically claims, I believe her, claims that she has not seen the series past, I think she said she'd seen the first two or three episodes. Um, But isn't the comedy, the comedy concert, whatever it was, uh, that was episode three, I believe. I don't know. Uh, Curious, curious, curious. Have I found the lack of press that this show has put out fascinating? I have. Um, Am I aware of the fact that SJ uh, did that American Vogue cover and the accompanying profile and pretty much nothing else until this Watch What Happens Live appearance, which happened after the series had wrapped? Yes, I find that fascinating. Do I understand that she is filming Hocus Pocus 2? Yes, I do. But I guess the bigger question that all of this leads to is sort of like the rush job that is this show. I mean, the show was announced at the beginning of 2021, and the show has already ended in the beginning of 2022, pretty much a year later. So in one year's time, we got the show being greenlit, the show being written, the show going into production, the show wrapping production, and the show airing all of its episodes. And I just think that's unusual. It, I mean, not, I don't think that's unusual. It is unusual. Um, and it does make one wonder. I mean, hey, maybe it comes down to scheduling. Uh, you know, Cynthia Nixon has the Gilded Age. SJ is filming, um, like as I said, Hocus Pocus 2, and then is doing Plaza Suite on Broadway. No doubt that has a challenging schedule to work around. Kristen Davis is really into elephants. There's probably elephants that, you know, are calling to her that need some sort of care. Um, and, you know, Other people have various projects out there. Hopefully Michael Patrick King is going to get started on the comeback season three at some point. So I understand the fact that schedules are what they are, but I do find the entire rollout of this show quite fascinating. And I'm curious too why we haven't gotten word about season two. Now, between the time I am recording this right now and uh, when you're listening to this, we very mel- we very well might get that announcement. But as of this moment, it has not come yet. And, you know, we're several episodes into several other HBO series which have already announced their renewals. Or you have instances, I mean, for instance, let's take Euphoria. Euphoria is about halfway through its second season, and we got a season three announcement. And just like that has wrapped not only production, it's wrapped its season airing, and we don't know whether or not we got a series or season finale. And while I am very certain uh, that we will get a season two, I'm wondering what we're waiting on. Also, I'm so excited at the possibility of season two in that season one was made in a vacuum. There was no time to really understand what both fans and critics are going to feel about certain things, right? There were certain inevitables. They knew everyone was going to miss Samantha. But there's a lot of aspects of the show that I'm curious to see how and if they will course correct on. And there's just more stories to tell. Like, I am really curious if we were to abandon the Che plot for Miranda, what other avenues and adventures we could go down. Like, there's a lot... There's a lot more to do on this show. There's a lot of places for Carrie to go now that she's single. And, you know, there is the possibility that Aiden could come back or we could get a random appearance by um, Berger or, you know, bring in John Slattery's character back, um, the guy that that wanted to pee on her. Which, by the way, it would be great if the Carrie of today was very down for water sports. There are so many 
plot points I would love to revisit. For instance, at the Watch What Happens live taping, SJ mentioned Amalita Amalfi, which is a character who pops up in season one, um, similarly to Susan Sharon, in sort of showing up for an episode and just becoming an immediate icon. Bring her back. Um, Seema has some of the qualities that Amalita had, but I would love to see Seema and Amalita interact. I would love to see more of Seema. I feel like Seema really was one of the breakouts of the new crop of characters, and I'm really interested to see what they do with her. Notably, I think it's interesting how many plot points on this show went unresolved. I'm not the first person to say this, so I'm not saying these are like original thoughts, but like Miranda goes to Cleveland at the end of one episode, and then one episode later, we're back and seemingly nothing important happened in Cleveland. I want the lost Cleveland episode. I want to know... Because, you know, we know that Che doesn't respond so well to Miranda showing up at their door unannounced. And I would I would imagine Che would have had a similar reaction when Miranda knocks on the door of their Cleveland hotel room. So cameras up on that immediately. Um, and then just like some small details. Like we, you know, we have Gloria, Big's former secretary, shows up in the second episode of the funeral. There's some weird moments with her. She gets really emotional during the funeral and then has this odd exchange with Stanford where she like wants to sit in the front row and Stanford sort of curbs her. And it's just an odd interaction that we never sort of like got any follow up on. And then, you know, some of the bigger things that I know a lot of people are talking about, for instance, Miranda's alcoholism, which just like suddenly disappeared, but also small things like uh, Big's dog. Is it Goji? Goji, I think is the dog's name. It's like, what was the deal with Goji? Or like, we never really sort of threaded the needle on like why we had to find out that Big left this million dollars for Natasha but then never learn sort of like the implications of it, right? It's like, yes, it forced us, or not forced us, it gave us the opportunity to get Bridget Moynihan back on the show, which is fantastic. But then I'm like, let's let's do more here. The other thing I'm interested about with season two, now that we know for certain, because SJ has made it clear in no uncertain terms that Kim was not asked to be on in just like that, which is not to say she would have done it or, or wanted to do it, or, or actually, I mean, Kim made quite clear she did not want to continue with the role. But nonetheless, SJ seemed to make it clear that the door is closed at the possibility of these four women reuniting on screen. And it's interesting because given what happened at the end of season one, and, you know, they finally meet up and everything, I don't think we can continue the text message iteration, the metaverse version of Samantha <laughs> that existed in this season. So I don't really... Season two would be the first real Samantha-less outing for the show, and I don't know how I feel about that. I am curious how people feel about this. I am of the mindset where I would be happy to recast Samantha and bring the character back. Yes, you are never going to have the original all hail Kim Cattrall, believe you me, but there is a version of this show for me in which someone like Sharon Stone walks in and we're told she's Samantha and like, I'm buying it. This show has done enough kooky things. You know, I'm thinking back about, upon, um, there's a season one episode very early on in the series where Carrie starts levitating. She starts levitating. This to say like, we've pulled some crazy ass shit, you know? Lexi Featherstein fell out of the goddamn window. I don't think it's the craziest thing to have a new Samantha come on and occupy the space because one thing was made clear to me and I think many of us in watching this show that the four women when you take one out it's just not the same and on top of that 
I think, I think Samantha is the most iconic of the four women. And I think all four of them are very, very iconic, but there's just something about Samantha tonally that when you take, take her out of the equation, I really do feel like everything sort of falters in her absence. All of that said, I think I share a sentiment that I'm seeing more and more of, which is we don't love the show and we want more. I am way more pro this show than I am anti, and I'm really not so interested in like negative critiques of the show, which is not to say that they are not valid, but like the way the show does not work to me is quite obvious. So the more critical analysis that I find appetizing is those sort of searching for the ways in which the show does work. And there are quite a few ways in which the show does work. I mean, I think notably, and I, and I talked about it in the first episode, but that scene between Charlotte and Miranda at Carrie's apartment after Miranda got finger banged in the kitchen and Carrie peed the bed, that scene was sort of like that, that, that was a reminder of sort of the possibility of this show. And even some of these new characters, I know I mentioned Seema, Hari Neff is Rabbi Jen, bring her back immediately. Like, make her the fourth girl at the table. Like, I just think there's a lot of possibilities for where this show can go, and I'm fully on board with it. Now, there is a connection here to today's guest, actually, which is unintended, um, but our guest happens to have made an appearance uh, on this season of Anne Just Like That um, in a very odd plot that saw... Carrie attending a plastic surgery consultation that was intended to be a his and his facelift for Anthony and Stanford. I've always found it odd that in 2022 we're talking about facelifts when I really think Botox and fillers are more of like where we've landed as far as like facial augmentation. Are people still getting facelifts? Let me know. Maybe I'm out of the loop on this. But um, anyway, needless to say, our guest today uh, played the plastic surgeon, Dr. Paul. Um, bring him back. Hello. Um, anyway, I want to waste no more time and get right to it, though, but I'm super duper excited. This episode has an interesting backstory into like how the sauce gets made, and uh, we discussed it at the very beginning. He could not have been nicer, and so I am excited to welcome Jonathan Groff. Shut up, Evan. He is an actor and singer with a bevy of awards to prove his acumen at both, including a Grammy Award. He has been nominated for two Tony Awards, two Drama League Awards, a Drama Desk Award, and an Emmy Award. That first Tony nomination came in 2007 for his performance in the lead role of Melchior Gabor in the original Broadway production of Spring Awakening. He returned to Broadway in 2015 to play the role of King George III in a little-known musical called Hamilton, a performance for which he earned his second Tony nomination. He appeared in Shakespeare in the Park's production of Hair in 2007 and returned in 2013 to star in The Pirates of Penzance. He appeared in 2015's City Center revival of William Finn's A New Brain and most recently appeared as Seymour in the off-Broadway revival of Little Shop of Horrors. He is also known for his myriad film and television roles. He was a recurring guest star in the Fox musical comedy series Glee, playing Jesse St. James, during which he was featured on four of the series' soundtrack albums and made a special appearance in the show's concert tour, Glee Live in Concert. He starred as Patrick on the HBO series Looking, as Craig in the television film adaptation of Larry Kramer's The Normal Heart, and as Holden in the critically beloved series Mindhunter. Will we get a season three? Here's hoping. He also recently appeared as Dr. Paul David, Carrie Bradshaw's almost plastic surgeon on And Just Like That. 
He is perhaps best known for voicing Kristoff in the film Frozen and its subsequent sequel, both of which are in the top 20 highest grossing films of all time. He also appeared as Smith in Lana Wachowski's The Matrix Resurrections. He is one of Broadway's brightest and most charismatic talents, and a man I have been on the hunt for, in the playful sense, not in the stalker sense, for over a decade. I love him, and I know you will too. Please welcome the wickedly talented, one and only, Jonathan Groff. I want to congratulate you on The Matrix Resurrections, which we will be talking about shortly, but I want to start by setting up the circumstance of how our time here together began. Um, During my freshman year at NYU, I, like many young Broadway obsessives, used to both see and what is known as Stage Door, the musical Spring Awakening, of which you were the star. For those unfamiliar, stage dooring the verb means to wait at the stage door of a show uh, in the hope of meeting and perhaps getting an autograph from stars like yourself. You were so kind each and every time and even wrote me a letter in the mail at one point back in 2008. I wrote to you nearly 15 years later after seeing you in the 15th anniversary concert of Spring Awakening and scanned the aforementioned note. And here we are now. It is crazy how life happens, is it not? So crazy. And I can't believe that you kept that note for 15 years, Evan, that is so powerful. And I, I had, so I, I, I feel like, like when I read it, there was a part of me that mourned a little bit myself from 15 years ago, because I, during Spring Awakening, very intentionally responded to every note, every single thing. And then people started writing me again. This is maybe also a little bit why I'm not on social media because I would write back and then they would write me again. And then I would feel so much uh, guilt for not then engaging. And I was like, I can't have hundreds of pen pals. I can't, I, 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 and so now I don't read or respond to any letter ever. Because it's like, I I just sort of turned the, I just thought I can't, it's like, I didn't know how, I didn't know what the kind of appropriate way was to engage without fully, it's like, I didn't know how to engage without fully engaging. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like there's an element of self-preservation and self-care involved in that. But I thank you that at this point in 2008, you were still at your returning letter writing phase. Now, (laughs) let's talk about the Spring Awakening 15th anniversary concert, if you will indulge me. Um, That's such a unique circumstance to get to perform a role on stage 15 years later and to do it with the entire original company and then made extra special by the fact that this musical holds a grand amount of reverence for the many of us who loved and love this show. What was that like for you when you got the call and then when it all culminated in in the night itself, how did that feel for you? So the call I got was from Lauren Pritchard in January saying, let's put together a Spring Awakening reunion concert. So we started by reaching out to, we'd, we'd always said we'd wanted to do one, but then it was, I don't think this would have happened without COVID and with that like sort of deep winter lockdown that we were all in last year and no one had anything planned, no one could plan anything. And we 
contacted the whole cast, we contacted the creative team, and it came together very fast. And we did it all as a uh, benefit for the Actors Fund, which was another like huge point that we wanted to do it for charity. And we wanted to we wanted to raise money for an organization that we felt like was really helping people specifically during the pandemic. So this being like a charity project also is what made it happen quicker and made it happen period. And it was, I cried. <laughs> I cried, I cried more during that week than I think I have collectively in my entire life. The, that we would be, I would be doing the scene with Leah, the, the like the first scene that we have. And I would be like, Venla Bergman, like a tree in a bullet. And I would just start crying. And everybody, everybody in the cast had these moments where we would just start, just, we would just go, get so emotional. It, it, it like, uh, it meant so much to us, obviously. And then hitting the stage that night and that audience was like, losing their minds and the revelation of the fact that as much as we know the show means to us, obviously, how much it meant and still means to people was like, I mean, I could cry right now talking about it. It was unbelievable. Yeah. It was unbelievable. Yeah. And I think for many of us, we rightfully didn't anticipate that we would ever all see you all together on stage again. And there was something I know in the audience of thinking, oh, you know, like take your first entrance, for instance, we were clapping so loud. And I was like, there's no way we can sustain this level of jubilation for every single number. And yet we persevered, we did. It was just the energy was, uh, it stayed there throughout the entire, uh, both acts. It was remarkable how energized that audience became with throughout the show. It just never lapsed at all. It was, it was, it was unlike anything I've ever experienced. It was, it was so powerful and just like <sighs> coming back and seeing each other and reminding each other how much we all mean to each other and having like reforming that bond 15 years later, we, the, the show was so bonding when it first, when we were at the Atlantic and we were off Broadway and we were moving together and then everybody kind of left at different times. And so we never really properly got to be together as a group to say goodbye to each other, to hug each other. It was, it became so when Gideon was the first person to leave, to go to college. Uh, and so, and, uh, and so like that, getting that opportunity to come together as a group was like, it was so healing and emotional in ways that we did not even anticipate. And I feel more connected to that group than I ever have. It, and I think the, the beautiful thing too that Michael Mayer, the director was saying to me as well was, this feels like now that we've done this, this group will stay now it's to the end. Like getting the opportunity to come back and see each other and whatever, not that we're gonna perform together again. I have this like dream of having, buddy, having everybody in a couple of years on an anniversary to my farm in Pennsylvania. It just feels like we like reconnected in a very profound way. Mm, never say never. I mean, we can do 20 year, 25, 30, <laughs> et cetera. Um, I wanna ask you about a specific moment in the show. Um, it comes toward this, the very end. Melchior is singing his final lyrics, having decided against committing suicide, thanks 
thanks to the ghosts of his best friend and his girlfriend, he sings, quote, now they'll walk on my arm through the distant night. I'm wondering if you could indulge me in finishing those lyrics. You don't have to sing them. I'm just wondering if you could uh, finish the lyrics. Now they'll walk on my arm through the distant night. Or you can and I won't let them stray. I can't do without crying. Oh my God. <laughs> and I won't let them stray from my heart through the wind, through the dark, through the winter light. I will read all their dreams to the stars. Thank you. And I ask about this moment because I'm wondering what it's like to perform that moment every night in which you grab these two and you bring their hands into your chest as you're sweaty and you're covered in spit and you have emptied out your soul on stage. What is that particular moment in the show like to perform? Um, I don't mean to make you cry. Uh, this, do you mean this time? Like this, at this, like from three weeks ago? Because doing it three weeks ago was what, what we did when we did it in rehearsal. We didn't know how much of the stage, we, how much of the staging we were going to do, or if we were just going to be at music stands or what. And then very quickly, everybody, we only rehearsed for three days and very quickly it came back. And in this particular moment of blocking, like you said, I would reach my hands behind and pull them into my heart. And we just started doing the song and I put down my book and I did that and this, and it was like, we didn't even talk about the fact that we were gonna do it or that whatever, it just like happened. And so I, I remember doing it back then felt like um, life. It felt like um, holding your friends when you, it felt like a hug when you really need a hug or, like when you have to really hold someone and it and it like fills the inside of your soul. That's what it would feel like every time when I did it back then. And then this time doing it, it was like the most, I, it's like, it's like so many layers of, of it's like hilariously uh, emotional to me still. Um, it felt like I was gripping onto, um, and the whole experience actually, and I think for all of us, we felt like we were, holding on to each other and ourselves then and simultaneously holding on to ourselves now. Mm. It was it was at the same time then and now, this surreal experience of feeling like we were 21 or 19 and also seeing ourselves as, as grown-ups. And so pulling John and Leah into my heart this time felt like I was pulling them from the past, but I was also pulling them from the present. Mm, very profound and very apropos that they're singing Not Gone as they start to walk away from you. I mean, the dramatic irony is not lost on me. Um, speaking of that spit, uh, with Hamilton being captured on film, many now know you as an ample spitter, but for those of us who have followed you through the years, <laughs> We know this is one of your signatures. In fact, I know people that will specifically pay extra for those good seats in a Broadway house or an off-Broadway house so they have the opportunity to be spat on by you. What is it about you and spitting? Is it something you, you cannot sing without it? Is it fair to call it your signature? Where's the relationship? You can call it whatever you want, Evan. <laughs> and uh it's just because I have a wet mouth <laughs> and I, and I, 
I don't don't think I mean when I was doing Little Shop two years ago that theater is very small the West Side Theater and it was the first time I could really they don't have a spotlight in that theater so a lot of times when a spotlight hits you on stage it, you can't see anything in the or at least for me I can't see anything in the audience but at the West Side Theater there was no spotlight and I could see people in the audience and I was spitting and I don't think about it while I'm spitting but people were putting their programs in front of their face or like laughing or like reaching up to the spit or whatever. And that was the first time I'd been on stage where I'd really seen people reacting to it. And it was, I had to be like, oh gosh, okay, can't, I can't look at that. I have to like look above that because it's so distracting, the reaction to it. Uh, but I don't know, I, I, you know, Altoids was a lot of the reason for the spit during uh, Hamilton because I had to come out cold and sing. The Altoid made my throat feel like it was more open, but it would also create a lot of saliva. And then just generally, I mean, I always have like 500 beverages. You could ask anyone. I'm surrounded by drinks right now. Mm. Uh, so I'm just a very lubricated person. I love that. Um, LaCroix Pubble Moose, is that your choice flavor? This was, you know, it was at the West Side Market last night and I saw the Pomplamoose and I felt drawn to it, but I'm not in an exclusive relationship with the Pomplamoose. Fair enough. Um, I want to ask you one other Spring Awakening question amongst my arsenal of 500,000. Um, there is a simulated sex scene at the end of Act 1 and it's yeah. replayed again, at, or excuse me, it's at the end of Act 1 and it's replayed again at the top of Act 2. I can't imagine what it's like to be nude on stage once, let alone do it eight times a week. And I'm wondering what that was like for you. And I'm wondering if there were ever days that you were like, God damn it, I don't feel like showing off my bum on stage. Never felt like not doing it. I will say that. <laughs> Never felt like not doing it. Uh, loved it. Uh, loved it so much. Uh, Leah and I were like, we were so close and so like like high school friends like inseparable constantly on top of each other and we would make out so hard with tongue like spit snot everything and we we were like performing for our lives back then. I mean, we were young kids on Broadway getting to do, it's Romeo and Juliet kind of, getting to do this like epic thing. And we put everything we had into it. And when we were, we were doing the reunion concert, I texted Michael Mayer and I said, what are we gonna like, how do, cause it was relearning the lines. And I was like, now there, now that's, there's lines in the Hayloft scene that are very clearly about sex are we, what are we doing? And he was like, I don't know, why don't you and Leah come over to my apartment and we'll figure it out. And so we did. And so we found a way, as you saw, to do it without getting naked. And we didn't do like the fingering, like there was moments where I fingered her and whatever, kissed like her breasts and the whole thing. And, and when we did it on the night, <laughs> we started making out with the tongue again. And she came over to me in the hayloft and I felt this snot oh drip God. down my nose from crying. Like, like, cause she was like, cause Mel, you're so upset in the snot. And it was like, oh yeah, this, this is how it was. It was like, it all, like the, the primal body, like, whole thing and the stuff it all came back that one night in the moment even though we weren't going a hundred percent but we were like 70 percent with the physical expression 
And the snot came out and I was like, yep, we would like eat each other's snot and just like really go for it. But, mm. but it was great. We loved it. So it sounds like you might've been wishing that you were able to perform the nude scene again, seeing how comfortable the two of you are with one another. Um, that's the impression I'm getting. I mean, I would have done it. I would have done it. I would have totally done it. It just didn't seem in Michael. Michael was like, we, you know, it's not, it's not that. We did, with, let's do a tasteful, you're 30, you're in your 30s now, kind of like <laughs> version that's a little slower and a little like less, less like teenage. Yeah, fair enough. I think it landed well. I still understood what was going on in the moment. Before we continue, let's take a quick break and hear from some of our sponsors. Can we talk about Sunday Riley? Not only is it the name of not one, but two of my favorite Buffy the Vampire Slayer characters, it also just so happens to be one of my favorite skincare brands. Sunday Riley uses advanced, clinically proven ingredients blended with balancing botanicals for non-irritating, fast-acting formulas. Just because the end of times might be near doesn't mean you can't have great skin. Some of my current obsessions include their global best-selling Good Genes All-in-One Lactic Acid Treatment, CEO 15% Vitamin C Brightening Serum, and their Autocorrect Brightening and Depuffing Eye Contour Cream. As a person with notoriously puffy eyes, the last one is a really saving grace. If you want to visibly improve the look and feel of your skin, look no further than Sunday Riley. Sunday Riley is available at Sephora and Sephora.com. And we are back. I want to talk about your early life, which you've spoken a bit about. You were born in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, but you grew up in Ronks, Pennsylvania, which according to the 2019 census has a population of 133. Yes, it's gone down quite a few hundred. I think it was at like in the 300s at some point. Your father is a Mennonite and your mother is a Methodist and you grew up amongst Amish communities. That's so interesting for all the obvious reasons, but super interesting to me in looking at your trajectory. And I'm wondering what this type of upbringing did in terms of shaping your sense of the world. It never seemed weird to me, the environment that I grew up in until I moved to New York and would start to tell people that my neighbors were Amish, that Amish women would work in the garden while I would mow my grandmother's lawn and then they would get in my car and I would drive them home. This was like, totally normal to me growing up. It didn't seem weird until I moved to New York and it suddenly became weird because people were like, what the fuck? That's so weird and strange. Um, and then as far as informing myself now, gosh, well, I went back to Pennsylvania during COVID. I have a house there like 20 minutes from my parents' house. And I realized how much of the kind of serenity and simplicity and sort of like natural appreciation for natural beauty is still inside of me. And I love, it's not like I left home. I can't wait to get out of here. I want to move to the big city and be an actor and like fuck the fields. Um, I still feel really at home there and I still really love it there. And I have this dream of turning my dad's horse farm into an artist retreat. And actually when Gideon Glick left Spring Awakening, we did a cast trip to my dad's farm and we slept out in tents and went skinny dipping and the whole thing. And anytime I've brought friends from New York to my dad's farm or to my area where I'm from in Pennsylvania, they feel uh, 
relaxed, creatively inspired, et cetera. And so I'm sort of like, funnily enough, in the, in the recent years, back in a dialogue with my hometown and am finding it like a great source of uh, creative energy. Yeah, I mean, there's something great about escaping these big cities that so many of us find ourselves, I don't want to say trapped, but I think sometimes it seems like the world is just made up of lots of big cities. And it's nice to be reminded at times that that's not always the case. Now, I know before you moved to New York, you had gotten into Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I am from- really done your research, Evan. This is so impressive. Um, I am from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and I know that you shot Mindhunter in Pennsylvania. And one question I got from many of my fellow Pittsburghers was just to ask you if you have any favorite spots in Pittsburgh or what your favorite thing was about the city of Pittsburgh. We Pittsburghers are particularly proud of our hometown. I just made a restaurant list with like 20 restaurants on it for my friends that just went to Pittsburgh. What were my favorite spots? Okay. Well, this, I don't know if this would have been there when you were, when you were growing up, but did you ever go to Bar Marco? I have it on return visits, but yes, I know all about okay. Bar Marco. Theater Bar Marco. people love Bar Marco. Yeah, I could see that because it's like kind of like a, they took over a fire hall and made it a restaurant. There's something very theatery about that. Yeah. Um, and the food is amazing and the drinks are amazing. I lived in Lawrenceville when I shot the first season of um, Mindhunter and so there's like that main strip there in Lawrenceville that's great that I would walk down a lot you know it cracks me up that like in bars in Pittsburgh people are still smoking in the bars there I and I kind of I know I know it's like I kind of loved it it felt like it felt like from another time and it felt like there was like this authenticity to yeah. the vibe in Pittsburgh that I really appreciated and the the kind of like I hate to use this word because I feel like it has a negative connotation now, but the hipster uh, vibe in Pittsburgh feels so true and unpretentious. And uh, I love just kind of like being around that there. I lived in Squirrel Hill the second season. Um, I don't know if, is the Ace Hotel still going? So yeah. <laughs> it's not open, but they do not use the word closed. So I yeah. remain hopeful about its imminent return. But yes, I too love the Ace Hotel. I was born in Squirrel Hill, so this is all resonant. And to what you said about us people smoking in restaurants, one thing I always find myself surprised at when I go home to visit is you would think with a smoking section and a non-smoking section, the whole place would just smell like smoke. I don't know how, but for some reason, the non-smoking section, you'd never know that just a few feet away, people are puffing away. I don't know if it's like something of a time warp of some kind, but it does kind of work, even for non-smokers. It does kind of work. Yeah, because even I remember, remember in McDonald's when it was, there was a smoking <laughs> section and a non-smoking section. And I do remember like, it was definitely different in the smoking section than it was in the non-smoking mm, section. Yeah. Um, ahead of today, everyone kept telling me from friend of, friends of yours to fans who had encountered you, how nice you are. That is the pervading opinion about Jonathan Groff. I must be honest with you. And as someone who received a letter from you in 2008, I too can add to that to that and say, yes, you are very nice. And I'm wondering where that comes from, that, that instinct to be kind to others, even when your time might not allow for it, even when you might not have the energy, you strike me as someone who goes out of your way at times to be kind. 
And I just want to know the origin of that. I wonder if that's also part of what um, I'm thinking of, of being from Pennsylvania and sort of rural farm area and coming to New York and seeing Broadway musicals and realizing that there was a gate where you could wait to get people's autograph and really remembering every interaction I had with people at that gate and how much it would like give me juice for months. Like, like meeting Sutton Foster at the stage door or meeting Matthew Broderick at the stage door would stay with me for a long time. I don't know why, I, like I, that's really, I don't know why that is, why that, maybe they seem so far away and then you're meeting them in person and then somehow it's energizing or whatever. But with Spring Awakening, it was such a quick transition from moving to New York to become an actor to being in that show because they were looking for young people signing autographs. And so I had been so recently asking for autographs that standing at the stage door and giving autographs, I understood what it felt like. I really remembered what it was because I was almost like the exact at the exact same time. And I would even sometimes take people backstage. If I had gotten to like the end of the line and then and then I would, and I, they'd seemed like they were so excited and I would take them backstage. And it just like made me feel good. I respond when people are polite or nice to me. And so I think it's just sort of as simple as that. I really do think it has a transient impact because I remember from a young age when you did that for me and I, and I wrote this to you, it instilled something in me to be kind to others. And so I think that those moments for some people that might seem so inconsequential um, really can hold a lot of weight well into how they move and operate in the world. So I wanna thank you for being so kind 15 you, years Adam. later, it stays with thank me. You. Now, thank you. You're welcome. Uh, you've always been out of the closet from the outset of your career, which is something I really admire. But I want to pass to a friend of ours who can relate to this far more than I can. Hello, Mr. Groff. This is Ben Platt. I hope you're having a wonderful time with Evan. I miss you. Hope you're well. It's been far too long. I figured I'd throw my hat in the ring and ask my own question. As you know, I've been an admirer of yours and your career for quite some time since I staged Doored Spring Awakening on several occasions as a teenager. Um, and the fact that I did not attend the reunion concert will follow me for the rest of my life. Um, I guess I was just wondering, you know, I, I find it very inspiring the way that you've been able to navigate playing both queer characters and straight characters in a beautiful way. And, and your performances in both arenas have been very layered. Um, and as a gay actor, I sometimes find that when I'm afforded the opportunity to play a queer character, there's a certain freedom or an ex accessibility to instinct that's available to me that I don't necessarily get when I'm playing straight characters. I find there's a bit of working overtime to sort of keep a cap on certain things or keep certain chests of tools or abilities closed when you're playing a straight character. And I just was wondering if you could speak on that experience of hopping between the two and if one has ever felt sort of freer or easier than the other, or if um, you know they're just as varied as any other kind of difference in character that you might experience playing different characters. Um, anyways, love you both. And um, see you soon, I hope. That was such a well-articulated and thought-out. Uh, wow. So I wasn't out of the closet when I was doing Spring Awakening. Mm. I wasn't saying I was straight, but I was like in interviews 
not saying anything and was very expertly dancing around the issue and was not out of the closet to anyone while I was doing the show. And I had a roommate, in quotes, who was my secret boyfriend. I mean, I'm, everyone in the cast assumed, of course, that he was my boyfriend and that we were together and that I was gay, but I never spoke about it. Not even with Leah, never said to her, I'm gay, that's my boyfriend. I just would shut down the conversation. So during Spring Awakening, I was leading a double life where I was having this boyfriend in my, you, you know, my roommate boyfriend here. And then I was playing a straight character in Spring Awakening. And in some ways, playing the straight character and playing Melchior was completely liberating because there was so much um, sexual exploration and sexual expression and and like release of repression happening in, in the character in, in general. He was so opposite of what I was in real life. He didn't let the world define him. He was uh, a, re a rebel. Um, he wasn't worried about being a nice person. Uh, he was dangerous. He uh, let his body take control of him, if even accidentally. And the sex that I was having with Leah on stage was, was, was intimate and emotional and incredibly expressive. And uh, when I left Spring Awakening, a month after I left the show, I came out of the closet to my friends and family. And the beautiful gift, one of the many beautiful gifts that that show gave me was, I really believe, and I, and I thank Michael Mayer for this forever and Stephen and Duncan, I really felt like that character cultivated this part of me that was dormant, that over doing it for two years, I got to develop and express and grow. And when I left the show, I had nowhere else to put that energy except my real life. Mm. And I came out, I moved out of my apartment, I changed my life and started leading a more authentic existence. And it was, it was completely life-changing. As far as like playing queer characters as opposed to straight characters now, I find it all liberating in a way. I don't, I don't feel like Ben does, or I haven't yet at least felt that way, where, I'm, where I feel like I'm working overtime. Because I'm, I guess for me, I'm not necessarily thinking about playing a sexuality or hiding anything. And in, and in many ways, being out, period, makes me feel free in every creative process. So even when I was doing Mindhunter and I was having sex with um, a girl in the show, I felt in the rehearsals like I could talk about my sexual experiences and my lack of sexual experiences with women and be completely upfront about it and learn and grow and talk. And so I would say that maybe when I was 
not maybe, definitely when I was closeted and we were rehearsing the sex scene for Spring Awakening, I was just silent and be like, whatever, tell me what to do. Because I, I thought like, oh God, they're gonna, they're gonna find out that I'm gay and I've never had sex with a girl before and this is gonna be so obvious. But now I feel liberated in playing any type of character just because I have nothing to hide anymore. Mm. Can't get enough of Shut Up, Evan? I don't blame you. That's why you have to check out our Patreon. It's patreon.com forward slash shutupevan, where you will be able to find advanced access to interviews, bonus episodes, video clips from the interviews, cut for time questions, and so much more. You don't want to miss out. I am fully committing to making the Patreon a much more robust experience for season three. So again, www do people say yeah www.patreon.com forward slash shut up evan throughout that answer i mean people are not going to be able to see this but you've been playing with your hair quite a bit and this actually i didn't have this on my question list but it did occur to me you have wonderful hair you have a wonderful head of hair um what is your hair secret do you have a hair secret oh my god my friend jenny who's I'm gonna cut it all off soon, I think. Oh. <clears throat> Just kind of yeah, the, the hair in the drain, it's kind of like reached the maximum. I'm, I, the thing is, and this is related to that, to the answer to that question, I don't have a hair secret. Um, I just wash it with head and shoulders and put crew forming cream in it. And that's it basically. And uh, I, 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 that's all I know about that. Okay, fair enough. He's a man of, of, of simple wants when it comes to hair care. Um, I well, wanna... like when, it comes to, when it comes to like self-care and these guys, kinds of things, I, I'm, I'm very, um, it's Old Spice deodorant and Irish Spring soap. And I'm very basic in that way. I think that's kind of wonderful. I think one thing that frustrates me sometimes is, you know, reading so many magazines obsession with learning about celebrities' skincare routine or, or their, you know, these arbitrary routines that are not at all attainable. I think it's nice just to be like, I use the basic stuff and it works. I mean, okay. at the end of the day, I think that's a great statement to make. Now, I want to ask you about social media. I know you've talked about it before, but I remain curious because You've said in the past that the reason that you don't use social media is because if you were to use it, you feel like it would be a giant time suck. Yes. I can tell you as someone who uses social media quite a bit, it is in fact a giant time suck. And yet I have to imagine you've been pressured at times in your career to get social media. And I only say that because I think that in your vocation, that is, it's a powerful tool, right? To help get attention on the projects you're working on, but you have resisted. And I think that's incredible. Um, and I, so I wanna know what gives you, it, there's some power in that. It feels very powerful to resist a thing that so many people subscribe to. It tells me that you are a leader and not a follower in a society that I find to be increasingly follower prone. So can you just talk about that decision? First of all, no one's ever pressured me. Oh, no one's ever said, yeah, no one's ever said, <clears throat> no agent or or publicist or any a manager or any people that I have worked with or currently work with. Maybe I lead, I lead often in interviews or have, or interviews, yeah, in meetings with people uh, that it's just never going to happen. And and I think the thing, the, the, the selling point for me that, why it's never going to happen is that like I, I just 
in order for it to be uh, effective, I think in people's business, which I've seen it, obviously all of most of the people in my life are on it. Uh, you have to be invested in it. You have to enjoy it. You have to, it has to be an organic form of self-expression mm -hmm. and it just doesn't feel like an organic form of self-expression to me. I, I like, I delete my texts after I respond. This is perhaps a sociopathic quality that, uh, but I have no, I have no text chain that's saved. I like, I, I read them and I delete them so that I remember that I've responded and I get back to people, but like living in the remembering of what we said at one point, whatever, I just like, so my, I've got a like minimalist when it comes to everything in regards to my phone. And so the idea of including the whole world of social media, sort of how it relates to writing people back in the mail, that kind of, I'm like, oh. And then I think initially I wasn't on it because I wasn't out. And I'm sure if I was in high school and I was out or in, you know, when I'm in late teens, early twenties, when I moved to New York, I probably, because everybody was doing it, would have joined just because that's how you communicate with people. But I wasn't comfortable articulating who I was at that time. And so in those years where you join, I wasn't, I wasn't open enough to join. Mm. And then ever since then, I've just not had a desire. So it seems like the ship has sailed, but I, I have to wonder, do you have a Finsta? Are you aware of a Finsta? Or like, I just have to imagine some of the your Finsta close friends. Finsta? Yeah, because a lot of celebrities, I mean, Matt Damon recently revealed in GQ that he has a Finsta. He too does not have social media, but you know, maybe wants to go on and, and check. For instance, you might've wanted to see what the fan response was to the Spring Awakening concert. So like, are you ever like creeping around Instagram? No. Mm. Okay, so then tell me this, the time that I am wasting on social media, what are you, Jonathan Groff, doing with that time? Oh, working, besides working. Um, what am I doing with that time? I mean, I am a sucker for YouTube. Mm. So I would say that my kind of internet time suck is watching like old interviews from the Dick Cavett show, uh, watching just random, like a new, I'm a big news blooper person on watching like YouTube, I would say is my like internet time suck. Okay. That's respectable. Yeah. Um, let's talk looking. The HBO show you starred on from 2014 to 2016, which was heralded for its depiction of modern gay life in San Francisco. Many of us out there wanted more from looking. I mean, we got a movie after the first two seasons. And so I'm wondering, had we gotten more, what would you have wanted the third season of looking to look like? No idea. I was crying in my salad with the head of HBO at the time when they were debating to pick up the show for, this was before they gave us the movie. It was like, will we pick up, you know, are, the, are there enough people watching or not? And I was, I was really advocating for the fact that we had only scratched the surface and we had, I mean, we were just, Andrew Haig, our director of, main director of the show and Michael Lannon, who was the creator of the show, have this sort of beautiful, poetic, slow burn sensibility and this great sort of human quality to the way they tell stories. And it's not like, bah, 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 bah. you know, it's not like uh, hitting you over the head with very quick, fast 
things. And so they let things play out over time. And I, I was really, when, when I was desperately wanting and fighting and hoping for a third season, advocating for the fact that there's just so many stories untold that, that we, we, have to, we have to keep this going. We have to keep this going. Ultimately, there weren't enough people watching it for them to justify keeping it going. Uh, but it still is like means, means so much to me so much to me that show it was it was it was like such a close-knit group of people making a show in san francisco and we were all in love with each other and just like enjoying each other's company so much and pushing each other in all the right ways uh in what stories we were telling and it was like i would say i didn't even though i came out in 2008 or 2009 I didn't feel proud and truly like happy with just the basic fact of being gay until I had the experience of looking and being getting getting the opportunity to to, to like articulate with my friends both in the show and outside of the show just constantly talking about our experiences made me just so much more comfortable in my skin than I was before that. Mm. Your Looking co-star, Murray Bartlett, uh, just recently starred in HBO's The White Lotus. Um, I am a White Lotus super fan. Um, The first episode of Shut Up Evan this season featured Miss Jennifer Coolidge. And I'm just curious, were you watching The White Lotus? And what was it like watching Murray like play this like truly maniacal part that is so opposite from the human being that he is. I cried. I cried watching Murray in every single episode. Not because I was just like, fuck yes. Murray Bartlett is fucking killing it so hard in this show. So how good is he in that show? I just like, I, yeah, beyond. And at the, at the, well, you, we we talked about this in the email, actually. I think that when when the when the reunion concert of Spring mm-hmm. Awakening was over, you had you saw this happen. But but at the after party, Duncan and I were in the bathroom, and he was like, "Oh my God, I ran into the actor Murray Bartlett, who played uh, this character in The White Lotus." He was like, "So Duncan's chic was so starstruck that he met Murray from The White Lotus." But yes, I mean, watching Murray in The White Lotus was one of the most enjoyable things I've experienced in years. And I, I love, I love Murray so hard. Uh, and watching him do that was like, just my boy. It was my boy. Yeah, I have to say it was a very funny situation. I was outside the theater talking to Murray and then we became starstruck, Murray and I, when we saw Duncan and then Duncan comes over and approaches us and he's starstruck by Murray. And it was just a great, energy exchange. Um, I actually want to throw to our friend Murray, who has a question for you. Hey, Jonathan, this is Murray. Um, I just uh, wanted to put a question to you. If there was a third season of Looking, do you think there's any chance that Dom and Patrick could end up together? Um, Think about it carefully, no pressure, but our friendship is hinging on it. So there's that. Oh, interesting twist at the end of that question, Murray. Our friendship hinges. Hinges, hinges on it because I feel this is the crux of the issue. 
because will the friendship still remain if the characters engage in a romance? I'm going to say it's worth trying. I'm going to co-sign that. I yeah. think many fans uh, were hoping for that to come about. So, so you're you're for it. We'll give it a go. Totally. I mean, we should call Raul Castillo, and if and his all respect to Raul and Richie, and but I feel like I feel like Raul would be cool with it. Yeah, and I feel like you guys could get back to a friendship place if things you know don't pan out. Yeah. But okay, yeah, yeah. I'm glad we we got to the bottom of that. Before we continue, let's take a break and check in with today's sponsors. If you were to look in my fridge right now, beneath the shelf of Topo Chico, you would find cases of Can. These are my currently in rotation batch as I keep party packs stowed away as well. So what is Can? Can is a social tonic microdosed with cannabis that gives you a light and uplifted buzz, but with no hangover, fewer empty calories, all natural ingredients, and no regrets. Best of all, it tastes fucking good. So sure, I drink it for the THC CBD effects, but I also just enjoy it as a refreshment du jour. Blood Orange Cardamom is my favorite, but the Grapefruit Rosemary also slaps. For more information, including where to find it at your local dispensary and delivery options, follow at drinkcan with two N's or head to drinkcan.com. That's D-R-I-N-K-C-A-N-N.com. And we're back. Now, I could touch on Hamilton and Frozen, but we simply don't have time. And I fear you've been asked everything you could. But I do want to touch down on Matrix Resurrections. First of all, I had hoped to get a question from your co-star, Christina Ricci, who wanted me to say hello, but she is quite literally having a baby at the moment. So I thought it was well, best to brain check on that. I okay. want to know first what it was like working with Lana Wachowski. And on top of that, on something so highly anticipated. Oh my God, I think I took all the pressure that I was feeling having to do Kung Fu. <laughs> I laugh even as I say, it, cause it's still it's like, it was so surreal to be asked to do it. It was surreal doing it. And now it's surreal that it even happened. Uh, Lana, I went to an audition in San Francisco and we connected. I was, it was like, a, it was an audition where it was Lana and her wife, Karen, was there and their dog and their friend, Amy, who's also their executive producer. And it was like, I mean, this is the director. I mean, I also watched and loved Sense8 as well. Every episode of Sense8 Obsessed. And I told her this in the, in the, in the meeting that we had. I really feel like Sense8 is the queerest thing I've ever seen in the best way. It's like, it's just so, it's so next level. So next level to me, at least watching it. And uh, she was so cool and open and present and talked about why she was making this movie and how her parents had died. And it was months later and she woke up in a grief, you know, it was sort of like a, like a grief exercise, bringing back Neo and Trinity. And this, this movie, even though it's like, the matrix or matrix four it feels like it has so much uh there's so much uh around that she comes she's making it from this artistic impulse and so she was driving with that energy and and when she facetimed me and told me that i was going to play this part and i was going to be doing this fighting and stuff there was a part of me that just felt like well it's probably never going to happen even though she's saying it's happening because it's so 
outside of anything I would have ever anticipated, but I'm just going to go with it. I'm just going to go with her. I'm just going to trust her. I'm just going to put my hands in the air and roll with it. And that's what the whole experience was. And I came to find out this is what she is asking of herself and of her crew and of her and her performers. She, since her transition, it's been like this process over the decades of things aren't like planned out in comic book squares anymore for her creatively. She likes to find the, the like magic of the moment. And so the whole experience, you never quite know what is gonna happen. And it's very in the moment. And with the fighting and the shooting the gun and everything, it for me was very primal and very physical and very body first. Mm. Well, we are all very excited. We just recently got a new trailer and you appear to be without a mouth, uh, which leads me to believe you might not be a good guy in the movie. You might be a bad guy, uh, but I'm very excited to see that pan out. I want to end with some rapid fire questions. Um, okay. I want to ask you to name the best song in Dreamgirls. Look at me, look at me. This is the first one that's coming. I think it's I Am Changing. It is indeed. Is it? Is it for you, Evan? Hmm. Well, I really do like I Am Changing because I think it's very underrated. Uh, yeah, I would go with that. Yeah. Come I kind of, you, know, you know, what's interesting about Dreamgirls is it, it kind of feels so holistic. You know what I mean? It's one of those musicals where yeah. it's like every piece feels like a part of a whole. So it's hard yeah. to pull out besides, you know, and I'm telling you, it's hard to pull out songs. I just know that you really like Dreamgirls. You named it as one of your three favorite musicals along with Chorus Line. I'm trying to pull this out of thin air. A, a chorus Line, Dreamgirls, help me out. It's funny. I, I probably Chorus Line, maybe Funny Girl. Oh, yes, it was Funny Girl. Yes. Maybe, yeah, okay. That my friend just texted me the other day and was like, if you could go back in the time machine, what would be the three mm. that you would see? And I did say, so can, there's a, some consistency here. I said, Dream Girls, Funny Girl, and Gypsy, I think were the three original. Anyway, I don't I'm know wondering, if I yeah. my answer about the Dream Girls, but it, that was like the first song that came to me of like, if I had to hear a song right now, what would it be? And it would be that one. Mm. Now, in this same interview I'm referencing, you talk about the fact that you would want to go back and see Donna McKechnie specifically. Now, what's yeah. interesting is like, when I think of like the big powerhouses of Broadway, you know, for instance, Jennifer Holiday with Dreamgirls easily comes to mind, but can you sell me on Donna McKechnie? Because you liking her makes me think that I clearly am uneducated when it comes, I know your response alone, I know clearly I don't know my shit. What is it for you? Oh, about no, no, Evan, no, it's not about you not knowing your shit. Not at all, no. So, so, Donna McKechnie that year at the Tony Awards, not that this matters and awards and whatever, but it was like Gwen Verdon and Cheetah Rivera for Chicago and Donna McKechnie wins for a chorus line. And Donna McKechnie is the character. I mean, this, this like, uh, like the fact that she could dance that and sing that is, is like kind of an alien superhuman situation. So, so, so seeing that uh, music in the mirror number and watching someone, I mean, it was built on her, it was built for her and watching her sing that, act that and dance that, this is what this like eight minute number or whatever that is, feats of athleticism and mm. talent 
this I'm wanting to see. And, and just generally all of that whole show, you know, they sat in that circle and told their stories. And so this is the real people with the real stories doing the show on Broadway. I mean, that's like, that is insane. That's okay. insane. I, I'm gonna revisit, I'm gonna revisit. Um, Priscilla Lopez, yeah, who was, yeah, just like seeing them all, seeing them all tell their story in that original cast. Imagine like, imagine telling like your most traumatic growing up stories and then somebody writing it down and then giving it to you in song right. and then inviting you to do it on a Broadway stage. Like that, just like the idea of that is so crazy to me. And then specifically seeing Donna McKechnie who was so, epically gifted and and at that time and and the dancing and the singing of the that I want to see that. I love it. What does Kate Blanchett smell like? I I know what she might smell like sometimes. I think when I met her I was too um overwhelmed by the visual uh and probably the smell of my own body odor. I'm sure I had kind of a primal, you know, when like you get nervous and suddenly it's like you smell, your body smells. I would imagine my primal body reaction to seeing her in person overwhelmed whatever body scent that she had or has. But I will say, oh, I can't remember the name of the brand. The, the, the um, makeup ladies on Looking had done Blue Jasmine and they told me about this like eye thing, going back to like facial treatments that Kate Blanchett would walk into the trailer every day with this like under eye. I wish I could remember the name of the thing. And so for like three days, I came with the Kate Blanchett eye thing and I thought like, wow, so this is what Kate Blanchett is smells, smells every day when she comes into the trailer to work. So I knew that brief moment, but then I can't keep the, I can't keep the health going. So I dropped it. Fair. What would you be doing if you weren't an actor? Probably teaching English hmm. or something like teaching something in a high school and doing community theater. Love. Broadway.com called In My Life, your Broadway debut, quote, undoubtedly the most bizarre, misguided Broadway musical of the millennia. What do you, Jonathan Groff, feel is undoubtedly the most bizarre, misguided Broadway musical of the millennia? What are the adjectives again? <laughs> uh, undoubtedly the most bizarre, misguided Broadway musical of the millennia. I have to say, in my life, I guess. Oh, wow. But I feel like bizarre and misguided are, are it's hard to, to find something that fits the bill for both of those because mm. I've seen a lot of bizarre things and I've seen a lot of misguided things, but bizarre and misguided, yeah, I mean, I guess it's, it's um, I gotta throw it up to, to, uh, to in my life. Fair enough. Who was your celebrity crush growing up? I mean, is it is it weird that my first the first name that comes to my mind is Jennifer Garner? Is that like the so there was that? But then let me think of a man. Oh, fucking uh, Zach Morris on Saved by the Bell. 
Mm, Mark Paul Gossler. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Aligned. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Oh, Tell- and Matthew Broderick. Obsessed with Matthew Broderick. <sighs> That's taste. I'm aligned. Yeah, yeah. Um, tell me one thing you love about Leah Michelle that people might not know about her. <laughs> okay. The first thing that's coming to my mind is, so we had this after party after the spring awakening, <laughs> after the spring awakening um, reunion concert. And there were so many things that week, memories. Oh, right, it's this. Oh, right, this, that. And when we were wasted at the after party, and I th- we, we danced until 4 a.m. And there's this kind of persona that Leah inhabits on the dance floor that I don't, I think we should name it. I was saying to this to her when I spoke to her the next day or the day after that. I don't know, I don't know who that is. And uh, I so rarely see her, but this, I'm gonna call it a creature, this, this creature that hits the dance floor after a certain hour that is inside of Leah Michelle, I think would be shocking to people. Interesting. We'll have to- It is uh... like, a, it's like a, it's, it's, a situation mm, an unnamed situation at present but hopefully it will it will find its name um mm-hmm. in a hypothetical revival of gypsy that i am having you cast who would play rose sudden mm, oh yeah can i ask you so I talked to Gideon Glick ahead of today and he was like, you got to ask him about Sutton. His, his uh, I guess, one time fandom over, but then developed into a friendship, which is such a unique sort of uh, vantage point to have over someone that you love who kind of gets humanized for you over time. What has it been like sort of going from fan to, is it fair to call her a friend? I don't know how you would articulate it, but what's it like to sort of like develop that relationship and like round it out more? I can't. This is the problem. I I can't. um, uh, I'll never. She's been very open and very wonderful. We we I performed in her concert with her a couple of years ago. I can't call her a friend. Still, I mean, I know that 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 we are friends, but I I still get weak in the knees. Like if I see her walking down the street, I get nervous even still. So I, which is why I I, like, I'm just always going to have this thing with her and I'm never going to be able to get over it. And I'm okay with that. Mm. And we've, we've, we've been to drinks after a show together with, you know, a group of people and talking and you met her family and her husband and her child. And certainly we are friends and yet I'll never really get over the way I feel about her. Mm, I love that, I get that. Okay, couple last quick questions. This is for all intents and purposes, a Sarah Michelle Gellar uh, historical podcast. You know, that she is my, she is the center of my universe. She's coming on the podcast later this season and I'm currently writing a book about Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I'm just curious, what is, I ask all of my guests this, what is your proximity to Sarah Michelle Gellar by way of her work? Are you a Buffy fan perchance? I know what you did last summer, Scream, Scooby-Doo. You know, where do you fall in, in the canon of great Sarah Michelle Gellar works? So, so I 
was a huge Scream fanatic. And I know what you did last summer was a big, like, um, I don't know what's the right word. I, it, that really hit me at the perfect Scream and I know what you did last summer hit me in like, I don't know if this is when they came out or this is just when I found them, but it was like eighth grade, 1998, 1999, very like teen movie time. These are the two works of hers that I would say I'm the most familiar with. And I'm ashamed to say, I've never seen an episode of Buffy. I'm ashamed to hear it, um, but I understand. I totally get it. Uh, okay, last two. To the best of my knowledge, you have never starred in a Sondheim show. I know you did a concert, but I don't think you've done a show. Do you think we'll ever get a Jonathan Groff as George Seurat in Sunday in the Park with George? I don't think so because I just want to be Dot. Oh, okay. That's and wonderful. This is my, this is my, this is my uh, great... Um, head scratcher of dream roles is that they're all lady parts. So, so dot, like I always, I connect more when I listen to it. I don't know if you feel this way. I always feel her. I mean, I feel him How too, can you not? Yeah, obviously, but, but it's like, I feel her. I feel M Maria in the sound of music. I feel Eliza Doolittle. I'm okay. I'm absolutely, of course, to not play them. <clears throat> but you know, these are the these are what I this is what I fantasize about. So if we're going to do uh you as dot in Sunday in the Park, do you have any sense of who your George would be? <laughs> A lot of fantasy casting going on, but just you know. He's really thinking. Andy Patinkin. Okay. I get it. Makes sense. Uh to close things out, can you name a Glee cover song that's better than its source material? Ooh, definitely. Let's see. <laughs> um, ugly cover song that's better than its source material to my ears would be, oh God. I mean, I love, what is the name of that song? It's Corey and Leah singing. They say that the road ain't no place to start a family. But right down the line, it's in uni. Uh, do you know what song I'm talking about? No, but even if I did, I wouldn't say it because I would just want to hear you sing it. But no, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Wait, let me look it up. I'm gonna I'm gonna have it for you in two seconds. Uh, um, oh, come on, you know it. Maybe you don't. No. It was in Glee songs. Faithfully. Mm. Glee okay, and Corey Faithfully. Okay. Um, I'm going to call it there. I can't not thank you uh, from the bottom, 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 bottom of my heart. You have fundamentally changed the trajectory of how I go about my professional life and, and I'm lucky in that my professional life dovetails so wonderfully with you know my life life. Um, I will never forget that kindness. I will never forget that letter. I will always save that letter. The rumors are true, Jonathan Groff. You are as nice as they say, kind, generous. I thank you for making this happen. Uh, you're a true, true mensch, so thank you. Evan, thank you so much, honestly. That means the world and 
Thank you for coming that Monday. Thank you for writing me a note. Thank you for sending my note to me to remind myself about that, about that. It's like nice to be reminded about that. And I, and then what you wrote in the paragraph on the next email was like, so sweet and incredible. And it means the world to me. And I taught you the word yoked. Yes, you did. Because I clicked your link to Instagram mm -hmm. and went to your review as you sent me. And I had to look up what yoked meant. Is it because of eggs? I'm not sure. It's just kind of like yeah. a colloquialism of the internet that's taken off. And like, you looked noticeably buff. You are noticeably, noticeably buff. You look buff. It's that's a good thing. The matrix, yeah, like the, I got into the, the matrix workout mode. Mm, yes, love that. All right, so, thank you again. Everyone check out the matrix in theaters. Uh, check out every recording you've ever done. There are many and they're all worth checking out. And go rewatch Looking. It's currently available on HBO Max, seasons one and two and the movie. And you don't want to miss that. Oh, thank you, Evan. You're the best. Shut up, Evan. Shut up, Evan. Shut up, Evan! Shut Up Evan is hosted by me, Evan Ross Katz, and produced by Ryan Killian Krause with distribution via Acast. Special shout out to Alden Peters, Matt Storm, Sean Ross, Hank Kelly, and the myriad others who have contributed their talents, past or present. For more Shut Up Evan, binge seasons one and two, and become a subscriber on Patreon for bonus episodes, never before seen clips, and more. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.